Our passage for tonight is Mark 15, verse 1, through chapter 16, verse 8. I'll be reading chapter 16, verses 6 and 7. And he said to them, Do not be amazed. You were looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, He is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for blessing us with another day. We thank you for this time we have together. Father, I thank you for our brother Dan. We're grateful for his time of preparation. Please be with him as he explains your word to us tonight. Father, help us to receive your word well. Let us apply these truths to our lives and help us to respond appropriately. And Father, we ask all these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ for his glory. Amen. Good evening. So the opposite of evening is morning. So I'm going to start off this sermon talking about a morning. Particularly an early morning one day in August, a decorated Army Air Force pilot by the name of Colonel Paul Tibbetts Jr. led the 509th Composite Group on a mission which would take approximately five and a half hours to complete. Tibbetts was flying a specialized B-29 bomber, nicknamed the Enola Gay. When Tibbetts and his flight crew reached the destination, they opened the bomb bay doors, and out of Tibbetts' plane came what was codenamed Little Boy, which changed the course of human history forever. The day was August 6, 1945, and the first atomic bomb was dropped over Hiroshima, Japan, at 8.15 in the morning. Now, the mission to drop the atomic bomb was not a routine mission, but a top-secret plan that required an accumulation of human events all coming together at the exact time and place for this to occur. However, the final decision to drop the atomic bomb came down to one man, a former judge out of Independence, Missouri, who became vice president, and then the 33rd president of the United States, Harry S. Truman. Now, the decision to drop the atomic bomb was an extremely important decision in human history. However, it pales in comparison to the death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the single most important event in human history. Nothing in human history has had such a significant impact on on humans, on civilizations as we know it. Skeptics, atheists, and believers all can come together to agree that Jesus Christ in his resurrection has had the biggest impact on human history. And it didn't take $30 billion of taxpayer money to do it. It took one man, it took two logs of wood, and three nails. And that's it. Today's sermon is on Mark's account of the crucifixion, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in chapter 15 and the beginning of 16. Now, if you notice, uh, if you have a red-letter Bible, that means all the words that are said by Jesus are in red, um, you will notice that most of Mark, there's a lot of red. But if you get to chapter 15 and 16, there's little to no red at all. 
Um, and so the question is, why? Why is that? Why does Mark spend so much time around those who are in front of Jesus, around Jesus during his trial, his crucifixion, his death, and resurrection? Why not just quote uh, verse 16, verses 6 through 7? Why not quote 1 Corinthians 15? Well, let's try to see if we can go through, through this and, and give an answer. Now, Brett loved to give us long, sophisticated points. I'm going to go the opposite. I have three points. I'm going to give you the outline in advance. So the first point is hopelessness, hopelessness. And that is chapter 15, verses 1 through, th through 37. So that's 1 through 37 is the first point, and that's hopelessness. The second point is glimmers of hope. And that is chapter 15, verses 38 through 47. So that's Glimmers of Hope, chapter, 30, chapter 15, verses 38 through 47. And the third point is hope. Five words. So it's hopelessness, glimmers of hope, and hope. And then hope makes up chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. So under hopelessness, again, 15, verses 1 through uh, 37, I do have a few subpoints, so make it not too easy for you, but this one is uh, wickedness unveiled. So wickedness unveiled, and that makes verses 15, chapter 15, verses 1 through 15. Now, uh, verse, in verses 1 through 15, Mark uh, breaks down the uh, organization essentially into four persons, maybe groups of persons. The first one being the, the chief priests, I'm going to call them. Uh, Pilate is the second one, the third is the crowd, and the fourth is Barabbas. So let's, starting off, Mark exposes the plot by the chief priests, and it says, early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and scribes immediately held a consultation. Now this was not a, a, a consultation coming together to try to figure out if Jesus is guilty. This is, this is to find a way to get Jesus killed. Now, in the New Testament, the church is supposed to come together as one body, one mind, one accord. We see that the chief priests, the elders, the scribes, and the whole council are doing the same thing, but doing it for the opposite reason. How can we get Jesus killed? So what they do is they bind Jesus and they lead him away to Pilate. But the question is, why did they bind Jesus? What is the point of that? He wasn't a threat at all. Well, if they're going to deliver him to Pilate, they want to make him look like a threat. And then Mark introduces us to Pilate in verse 2. So just to give a quick, quick history of Pilate based off of Josephus, a Jewish historian, uh, Pilate was the fifth Roman governor of Palestine from AD 26 to 36. He bore the title of prefect. He typically resided in Caesarea, uh, but during the Passover, he would come and stay in Jerusalem because of the amount of pilgrims that would come up uh, and be there in Jerusalem. Now, he had several disputes with the, the Jewish people, uh, so much so that he, he uh, ordered the slaughter of several Jewish people that sickened uh, Roman uh, Emperor Tiberius uh, to the point that T Tiberius said, if you cause one more dispute, you're out, Pilate, you're dead. Um, so in verse 2, Pilate asked Jesus, as, as the chief priest brought him before him, says, are you the king of the Jews? So what's the question? Why ask him he's the king of the Jews? Because the chief priest went to him, went to Pilate and said, we have a man making himself out to be a king. Now listen, Pilate wouldn't care about religious disputes, but if there's someone making himself out to be a king, that will give us, get his attention. Um, 
And then Jesus responds, it is as you say, his first response of two responses throughout chapter 15. Now, this is not a denial, uh, but it's not an acceptance of an earthly king. His response actually turns it back on Pilate and says, it will do well for you to consider the question you just asked me. And the chief priests are quick, are quick to accuse Jesus in verse 3. They were prepared for many accusations. They're essentially telling, Jesus, you're not getting out of this one. We worked too hard to get you to this point, and you're not getting out of this one. And Pilate asks again, do you not answer? See how many questions, accusations they bring against you? And Jesus' astonishing response in verse 5, he makes no further answer. And Pilate was amazed. Pilate has never seen anybody like Jesus Christ. He's probably had many people beg for their life. Nothing like this before. No one has seen anybody like this ever in human history. And then in verse 6, Marks introduce us to the crowd. So verse 6 explains how Pilate used to release for them any one prisoner whom they requested. So for them, the they, that is the crowd, as we'll see in verse 8. And at the feast, meaning the Passover, the feast of, of the unlimited bread, unliving bread. And it was, this was something that Pilate likely did uh, to win the favor of the masses. So in verse 7, Barabbas is introduced, and he is introduced as being in prison with the insurrectionists who committed murder in the insurrection. Matthew states that Barabbas was a notorious criminal. John refers to him as a robber. Luke notes that he's the insurrectionist in a murder. And then in verse 8, the crowd approaches Pilate and begins to ask him what he's been to do what he's been accustomed to do for them. Now, one of the commentators that I read stated that he believed the crowd was there for Barabbas. And the reason that is, the, is that it was so early in the morning that those who did follow Jesus may not have known about this false sham trial. And second is the flow of the verses. It goes from releasing at the feast to naming Barabbas and to the crowd coming up at this point in time. So I believe that in part. However, I do believe that some of the crowd were there, were there because of Jesus. However, I do believe the crowd were all there together in one mind because they wanted a rebellious leader. They were hoping that Jesus Christ would be that leader. But when, when it became clear that Jesus was not what they wanted him to, they turned their faith to someone like Barabbas. So in verses 9 through 10, Pilate asked the crowd, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he was aware that the chief priest handed him over out of envy. Pilate had knowledge that Jesus was innocent. At this point in time, he knew he was innocent, that he was handed over out of that. He was not a threat to Rome, and, but the chief priest's plot would not be that easily undone. In verse 11, the chief priest stirred up the crowd and began to ask, them to release, ask him to release Pilate for Barabbas instead. So what they're essentially saying is that if we can't convince Pilate on our own, we're going to get the crowd to get them. They knew how to get the Pilate. They knew what Pilate's weakness was. He was afraid of the crowd. And they knew the desires of, of the crowd for a rebellious leader. They inflamed their desires. And then verse 12, Pilate is concerned. He is now cornered. And he says, what then shall I do with him who you call the king of the Jews? And now is, not, is that not the question that echoes throughout human history? What then shall, you, shall we do? What, in, what should you do? with the man who is called the king of the Jews, Jesus Christ. And how you respond is a sign of your internal destination. Either you're going to heaven or you're going to hell based off of how you respond to that question. And then in verse 13, and, human, and, and we see how human nature responds at this point. Crucify him. Verse 14, Pilate reacts. Why? What evil has he done? 
In John's gospel, Pilate publicly announces three times, I find no guilt in Jesus Christ. The crowd shouts back all the more, crucify him. And then the decision comes down to one man. Just like Truman with the atomic bomb, it comes down to one man in authority, Pilate. Verse 15 tells us what the decision is and why. Wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate gives in to their demands, releases Barabbas for them, and after having Jesus scourged, he's handed him over to be crucified. Now, several of the commentaries that I've read have made Pilate out to be um, maybe sympathetic, maybe the, or even cunning, or a strong leader. I think he's a coward. If you know the right thing to do, and it's right in front of your face, you should do it. But he doesn't. So what do we take from this? If, if we could just lift the veil a little bit, what do we see behind all these people? The chief priests, for example, they wanted to retain power, the religious authority, prestige, wealth. Pilate wanted to contain his role as prefect, a representation of Rome, have power over people. The crowd, they wanted a rebellious leader, an insurrectionist, someone who stood for what they believed in. And interesting that Jesus exposes all this, and he only says, he only says a couple words. It is as you say. His very presence shows that he is not the one enslaved. They are enslaved to their idol. So if, we could, if their hearts could speak, what would they be saying? What would they be, they'd be saying to Jesus? They'll be saying, Jesus, you're not taking this from me. This is too important for me. This is what makes me feel important. This is my idol. This is my identity. And you're not taking it from me. And we're going to kill you for that. Are we different? Are we any different than this? Do we struggle with the same sins? Pride, greed, envy, fear of the crowd, hope for a sinful leader? We have idols. Yeah, but I would never plot to kill someone. Are you so sure? Listen, it takes one virus to infect the body to spread throughout the entire body, causing sickness and disease. It takes one cancerous cell to duplicate and spread and cause a, cause a tumor. Our sin is the same. If our sin is allowed to spread without resistance, we will be just like them. The only resistance is God's grace. So left alone to our sins, we are no different. We are the chief priest, we are the pilot, we are the crowd. Going to the next subpoint, and that's wickedness unleashed. Wickedness unleashed, and that's verses 16 through 21. Now, secular researchers have done a, a significant amount of time uh, studying the horrible, horrible human tragedies, such as the Holocaust, the Rwandan genocide in 1994. The question is, how is normal civilized people can condone and even participate in these great evils? The simple answer that they came up with is because they could. Those who rose to power in Germany and Rwandan encouraged, they prom promoted, and even passed laws condoning th these evils. The people followed this because they had authority from above, the government, someone they looked up to. And at that point in time, they had permission. The gates have opened, and they are allowed to give in to their evil. And in these verses, we see no difference here. So the soldiers take Jesus to, to the palace, which is the praetorium. Now the praetorium at that time housed the elite soldiers, the, per, the personal guards for, to the prefect. And they called together the whole Roman cohort. Now a Roman cohort was made up of about 600 men. Why did they feel like that was necessary? 600 men. Was Jesus that big a threat? He had no followers with him. He wasn't angry. He was just, actually didn't say anything. Why all this? 
Ever notice how easy it is to do something wrong when you're part of a crowd? The larger numbers you have, those who are doing it, the easy it is to get involved. And then in verses 17 and 18, they mocked Jesus by dressing him up in purple, put a crown of thorns on him, and they began to acclaim him. Hail, King of the Jews. Verse 19, they beat and spit on him, bow before him, make fun of him. Why? Because they could. They had permission. The government, Rome, Pilate, opened the doors and they could give in to this. Verse 20, after mocking Jesus, they took, they took off the purple robe and put his own garments on him. Just think about that for a second. Jesus was naked, was naked before all these men and they beat him, spit on him. Just imagine, imagine that was someone that you cared deeply for. Now, take it a step further. What if you did that to someone that you cared about? Ever been guilty of following the crowd? Ever made excuses for your behaviors? I have, I'm sinful, I follow the crowd. Now human nature without God will always lead to to depravity of this nature. And then they led him out, the soldiers led him out to crucify him. And then verse 21, they pressed in the service a passerby from the country, a Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now Simon was likely a pilgrim coming from Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. So the question is, why mention him specifically, where he's from, in the names of his son? Potentially, the, the original audience either knew Simon or probably most likely knew of his son, Alexander and Rufus. In Romans 16, 13, it says, Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord. Could be the same Rufus. Mark was writing to a Roman audience. And it says that Simon was to bear his cross. You know, you got to understand how a pastor would love this verse. Simon bears his cross. Um, but we don't... But we, don't have time to really break this down. So the couple of things that I do want to note is that, is that Simon would never have expected this when he's going up uh, to bear his cross. Just imagine what that was like, the going up on this pilgrimage and then being forced to carry a bloody cross. Never would have thought that. But at the same time, how could he have ever imagined that him carrying the cross for this short, short time would be the mechanism by which Jesus Christ would use to save countless children of God? And then how we can be comforted in this truth. How that our struggles, our burdens, that God can use those in ways for eternity that we would have no idea that he's using. So look at if you're going through struggles and you're going through pain, know that God will use it. He will use it. And you may not ever know what those feel like or, or ever know what God does. And you may not know until you get to heaven, but know the creator of the universe is using it for good. The next subpoint, and this is the last subpoint here, wickedness accomplished. That's wickedness accomplished. That is verses 22 through 37. So in John Owen's writings, Indwelling Sin, he describes that sin, the utmost end of sin is death. Sin, when it is finished, brings forth death, the everlasting death of the sinner. Now I agree with John Owen's. The sin, the goal of sin is everlasting death of the sinner. But I want to add to that, unless God made himself vulnerable and made himself killable, sin has a new target and it's going to go right after God. Now Jesus was taken to Golgotha, uh, place of a skull in verse 22. They tried to give Jesus wine mixed with myrrh. Now this was a primitive narcotic used to deaden the pain of crucifixion, but Jesus wouldn't take it. 
He did not rely on narcotics to render his final act of obedience. He was com completely focused on doing God's will. And then verse 20, 24, they crucify him. What a simple statement for the central act of redemption in human history. And then they divided up his garments and cast lots to decide what each man should get. Of course, why, why in the world would they divide up his bloody garments? And why in the world would they cast lots? Who would want bloody garments? It's just, again, showing the depravity of many of these people present. And then verse 25, Jesus was crucified at the third hour, which is 9 a.m. in the morning. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. So just think about this. He's on the cross, king of the Jews in Jesus Christ, the truth above the truth. Now, in, in John's gospel, Jesus says, truly, truly. This is a physical manifestation of truly, truly right in front of them. And then in verse 27, two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and the other on his left. Now recall in Mark 10, verses 35 to 37, James and John were requesting to sit at Jesus' right and left. Robber, right, other robber on the left. To follow Jesus is not easy. He says, take up your cross and follow me. Not an easy road to follow Jesus. Now in NASB, in the NASB, uh, you will notice that there's brackets on verse 28, meaning that those verses were unlikely in the original uh, manuscript, but later added. The ESV does not have uh, verse 28. It quotes Isaiah 53, 12, uh, which states he is numbered with the transgressors, with, which, which is an accurate fulfillment of the Old Testament. But Mark's original audience was, not, was a Roman Gentiles who unlikely understood the reference here. Now, in verse 29 through 30, the people were passing by, hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads, saying, Ha, you who are going to destroy and rebuild the temple in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Hurling abuse. So the Greek meaning of that is blasphemy. So essentially, they're taking verbal blasphemy and throwing it at Jesus right there on the cross as they pass by this helpless man who's done nothing, nothing wrong. And this is how he's being treated. And then in verse 31, in the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves, saying, he saved others, he can't save himself. In the same way, the same type of mocking. So what is, what is mocking? What, what really is that? What's behind mocking? Well, it's, it's a way of saying, hey, I, I'm better than you. It's, it's looking at someone who's going out there trying new things and trying to make a difference, and yet when they fail, you point, you point out their failure and say, look, you failed. So essentially, they're, they're looking up to Jesus saying, Jesus, you saved people, you spoke God's word, you did these miracles, but look, look where I got you. You're on the cross, I'm down here, you're suffering, I'm not, I must be better than you. Isn't it interesting how people believe lies? The truth is right in front of them. The greatest being on human earth is right there in front of them and they're mocking him. It's because they believe lies. And then the, verse 32, it says, let this Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. So at this point, let's say Jesus says, okay, I'll come down from the cross, fine, I'll bite, right? Well, what does that mean? Well, first of all, none of us will be saved, we're all going to hell, first one. Second one is, let's say he says, okay, I'm going I'm to continue on with my earth, earthly ministry. Well, go back to the beginning of Mark's gospel and read right through it because he'll do everything he said he's done again. And what will happen again? Go back to verse, five, go back to verse 1 of 15. The chief priest will be finding a way to do it. It will happen all over again. Listen, seeing signs and miracles does not produce faith. 
It's a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It's God opening up your heart. Nothing, no sign or anything is going to save, save you. The signs point to who God is. It doesn't cause faith. So, and then it ends with, those who were crucified with, with him were also insulting him. So let's just look at this. This is like a full spectrum of people that Mark, Mark is putting here. So we have the elites, the chief priests, and the pilots. We have the learned and the wise, scribes, elders, and council. We have the military, soldiers, the normalized citizens, the passerby, the crowd, the disorderly rebels, criminals, the robbers, all doing the same thing, mocking, ridiculing, promoting the death of Jesus Christ. All doing the same thing, all desiring the same thing. No one is immune from this. No type of personality, no one coming from a special family. Everyone will do the same thing in their human nature, which is want the death of Jesus Christ. And then at the sixth hour, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. So that's 12 p.m. to 3 p.m. So this is a supernatural darkening of the sun. And then we hit verse 34. Jesus cries out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama shabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this is Jesus' final statement, final written statement in Mark's original gospel. Now just dwell deeply upon this. How is it that Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, the second person of the Trinity, always been with God, can be cut off from God's presence in his love? Now, there is no commentator on this earth who could ever describe what this means. Jesus rejected and scorned by Israel, sacrificed as a political pawn by Rome, denied and abandoned by his own followers. Jesus is wholly forsaken and exposed to the horrors of, of humanity's sin. The horror is so total that in his dying breath, he senses the separation from God. The wrath of God is poured on Jesus Christ. Now, I believe when we get to heaven, we are going to learn more and more about Jesus. We're going to learn more and more about God. But we're going to not have the pollution of sin affecting that. Now just, just imagine that, that you get to learn without questioning. You always know the right thing in the next step. Now this, and I can tell you this, you will never understand this even in heaven, ever. Because we're not God, we're not Jesus Christ, and we have never been cut off from God like this. But we'll know more, and we'll know more and the more we know, the more we're going to know God's love. And the more we know God's love, the more we're going to love God. Just imagine what that's going to be like. Just to dwell in God's love there in heaven, knowing this great act that he did for us. Now moving on to verses 34 through 36. And when some of the bystanders heard it, they said, Behold, he's calling for Elijah. So why Elijah? So Jewish belief back in the day was that Elijah would come and rescue a righteous, innocent person. Because in the Old Testament, he was taken up um, without dying. So they believed that God would send him to rescue it. Others, other commentators say the way he said Eloi sounds like Elijah. And then someone fills a sponge with sour wine, gives him a drink, and says, let's see whether Elijah will come down and take him down from this cross. You see how these people were blind to scripture? There's nothing in there that says Elijah's going to come down. They're blind to truth. They wanted to keep Jesus alive to see if he'll do a miracle. They didn't really care about this innocent man suffering on the cross. Again, faith is not the result of miracles and signs. It is that personal relationship with, with Jesus Christ. And then verse 37, Jesus utters a loud cry and breathes his last. Jesus dies. The Son of God dies. Now just stop and think about this for a moment. What if you were the original hearer of this manuscript? Okay, so... 
understand that back then, they did not have the Bibles that we have. They didn't have numbers, verses. They didn't have chapters. They didn't have subtitles. So we, they didn't know what was going to be happening next. It was on papyrus. It was straight writing. And it typically was one person reading to, to an audience. So let's say the, the reader said, okay, I need to take a break. I'm going to go get some water. What, what would the original hearers be thinking at this point in time? This is awful. This is horrible. How is the hero of this story going to die? Then did you start this gospel off by saying, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God, but you're saying he's dead. Someone should have stopped this. The chief priests, elders, scribes, council, the Sanhedrin, you know the law. You shouldn't have plot to kill somebody. Pilate, you represent the government who's supposed to step in and help the innocent. You should have stopped it. Crowd, you should have stopped it. The people, the voters should have stopped it. Soldiers appointed to protect people, you should have stopped it. Passerbys, nobody is helping Jesus Christ. Mark shows what humanity will do to the Son of God. This is hopeless. Then you hit verse 38 and everything, everything changes here. Like a ray of light through the window when the sun comes in the morning or when news within the Nazi-occupied France spreads that the Allied forces are approaching, there's glimmers of hope. Verse 38, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. A, symbol, a symbolism that death of Jesus Christ has opened a way to God that did not exist before. There's a way to the Holy Holy. The veil was a block of, to the Holy of Holy to God. It's broken down because of Jesus Christ's death and people have a way to Jesus Christ. That, that was, people have a way to God that was never there before. Verse 39, the centurion first to announce that Jesus is the son of God. A Gentile soldier is the very first person uh, to announce in Mark's gospel that Jesus is the son of God. Now, just imagine what this is like to a Jewish reader. A Gentile is announcing that, that Jesus is the son of God. He's the first one to announce it. Now, Mark was a disciple of, of Peter. And most of what we have in Mark is from Peter. Now, I can just imagine that that Mark is taking down all that Peter's writing to him. And, and he, we get to this point and Mark's like, you want me to put that in there? You want me to put that a Gentile, a centurion, the one that's in front of Jesus to make sure he's dead, is the one who acclaims that Jesus is the son of God? And Peter says, absolutely I do. You put that in there and praise God that he did. I'm guessing everyone in here is a Gentile. And because of that, we know as Gentiles uh, that we have a way to God through Jesus Christ praise God praise God and in verse 40 Mark introduces the women Mary Magdalene Mary the mother of James the last and Joseph and Salome they're looking on from a distance but notice they were there they were committed to Jesus you just have to love through the gospels Jesus's love for the women and the women's continued on devotion for them. It is uncanny, and especially the fact that they would mention that in a near ancient, his, the Eastern writings. This is unheard of, that they would even mention women at this level. But the fact that, that God put them in there is because God had a plan for that. And it's amazing that, to see God's plan work out like that. Now, and we don't see any of the disciples there. How about the mighty, mighty Mark, or mighty Peter? Nowhere to be found. But we notice that women are there, devoted and committed to him. 
And in the verse 41, we see that, that when Jesus was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him, the women. Now, the Greek wording here is this isn't a, a stop of ministry or a pause of ministry. This is a ongoing, committed, devoted, devote, being devoted to Jesus Christ is what these women had. In verse 42 through 46, we are introduced to Joseph of Arimathea and the burial of Jesus Christ. Now it was evening by this time in, <clears throat> of day before the, and it was the day before the fat Sabbath was referred to as a preparation day. This will be Friday for us in verse 42. Joseph of Arimathea is described in verse 43 as a prominent member of the council who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. Now the ESV says looking for the kingdom of God but really had, they had the same meaning. You're waiting for something good to happen. You're looking forward to it. Like say if you're going on a vacation, you're waiting for the day to go on that vacation and you're looking for that day to go on a vacation. Now, many of you know me and you know that I am a Aggie and I went to Texas A&M and we are always waiting for A&M to win the national championship. We're always looking for A&M to win the national championship and we're probably gonna be waiting for eternity for that one to happen. So it states that he gathered up courage, went in before Pilate and asked for the body of, of Jesus. Now go back to verse 1 of 15. See how it mentions the whole council. It says the whole council here. Now in Luke, in Luke 23, 51, it's, Joseph is described as, as a man that had, didn't consent to their plan in action. John 19, 38 says Joseph was a disciple of Jesus but a secret one for fears of the Jews. Now, he may not have consented to their plan, but there's no indication that he tried to stop it. No indication that he went in before Pilate and said, don't do this. No indication that he was in with the crowd saying, stop, don't listen to, to these other people. Why did he gather courage now and not then? The simple answer is because God gave him courage at this point in time. In his human nature, he did not have courage. But the death of Jesus, God used that to rise up courage in him. And then verse 44 through 45, Pilate wondered if Jesus had died by this time. Jesus asked the centurion who was, job was required the guarding the, the criminals if he was dead. And he learned that he was dead and he granted the body to Joseph. In verse 46, Joseph bought a linen cloth, took Jesus down from the cross, wrapped him in the cloth and laid him in a tomb which had been hewn from a rock and roll the stone against the entrance of, of the tomb. So that tomb probably belonged to him, probably a, uh, potentially even a, a family heirloom, and he gave it to Jesus. Now recognize that this was not done in secret. He went in before Pilate when all the, the, the council, the chief priests would have saw that. He went up to the cross when all the chief priests were probably around it, open to everyone. He had courage. And then chapter 15 ends with Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph looking on to see where Jesus was laid. Now Mark is making clear that the death of Jesus has started a ripple effect changing people. The centurion, Mary, the Marys in Salome, Joseph of Arimathea, so a Gentile, women, a Jewish man, all changed by Jesus Christ. Do you see the shift here from hopelessness Jesus' death, and then now there's glimmers. There's actually hope. And then let's get to our final point, which is hope. And this is verse 16, chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. So we finally reach chapter 16 in the final verses here. 
Now, I started off the, the sermon with, with three, three subpoints of wickedness. Now, I want to end with three subpoints of the opposite of wickedness, which is love. So, the first one is love's devotion. So, that's love's devotion, verses one through three. So, here we see after the Sabbath was over, Mary and Mary, the mother of James, and, and then Salome, bought spices. And they came to the tomb early in the morning on the first day of the week, which would be Sunday. And on the way, they were discussing who will roll away the stone for us. Now, just imagine during the Sabbath what these women were thinking, how much turmoil they were, they, was going through them, knowing that Jesus, who they have followed, had been crucified. But yet, despite that turmoil, despite that none of the disciples were around, they showed continued devotion to Jesus, even in his death, which is simply amazing. And honestly, their devotion is a result of God's devotion and love for them. And we can learn a lot from these women that in times of fear, confusion, sadness, stay focused on Jesus. It will be worth it. And like Simon of Cyrene, he could never imagine that his one single act of devotion would have such an effect on, on, human, on human history in the gospel. The women would have had no idea that their act of devotion would continue on in scripture and, and hit the hearts of so many believers for over 2,000 years. It's simply amazing. And that's the next one. Love's amazement. So that's love's amazement, and that's verses four through five. So verse four, looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, even though it was extremely large. Now understand this. These women were not weak, likely very strong. Most people back then were, were extremely, extremely strong. This thing about it, everywhere they went, they walked. They probably were holding a lot, of, a lot of items. They had to hold their kids. I think Jesus was probably pretty strong. He was, he was a carpenter. I don't like the way that TV and video movies tried to portray them. They were extremely strong. So the fact that three women could not roll away this stone was, was a good indication that this was a huge stone. And when they got there, the stone had been rolled away. No other evidence, and the only evidence that it could be made is that it was, it was moved without any human intervention, a sign that God had rolled away the stone. Verse five, the woman entered the, stone, entered the tomb and see a young man dressed in a white robe sitting at the right. Now, the young man was an angel. How, now, how do I know this? First of all, it's very unusual for a young man to be sitting, sitting in a throne, waiting, sitting in a tomb waiting for people. Second, in, Ma in Matthew's gospel, he states that it was an angel in the tomb. In Mark's gospel, it is how the women respond to seeing the young man that proves he's an angel. Now, Greek words have, are so rich, depth with meaning that, that English words can never, ever accomplish. The Greek word for amazed or alarmed used in ESV means fear and wonder, astonishment and distress, all in one. It's the same word in, used in 14, Mark 14, 33, when uh, Jesus intense duress in Gethsemane. Unlikely that the woman would respond in such a nature if it was just a young man. And this act of God shows God's love amazed them. They were amazed by this act here. And then the final one here is love's message. And that's verses six through eight. The angel tells the woman, do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazarene who has been crucified. The women were going there. They're focused on anointing the body of Jesus, potentially even for some form of, of closure. Never in their mind would they have thought that Jesus Christ would have been resurrected. One of the commentators uh, put it really well. It says, it is so interesting that the living are so preoccupied with death, but the crucified one, Jesus Christ, is consumed with life. 
But the angel announces, Jesus has risen. He is not here. Look at the place where they laid him. This is the gospel right here. Jesus died by crucifixion. He was buried. He was raised from the dead on the third day. Recognize humans were not the first one to proclaim the gospel. It was God who proclaimed it. God was not leaving it up to humans to be the first one to announce the resurrection. In the verse, verse 7, the angels commands the women, take the good news to the disciples and Peter. Specifically, tell them that Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Interesting that the commandment to tell the good news was specifically given to the women, to take to the disciples and Peter. Something that you would not expect to be made up 2,000 years ago. If this story was made up, they would never have included the women in there. And that's just an apologetic point. But listen, God does not make mistakes. He did this purposely. And it's an encouragement to all believers that God was using women who were looked down upon by society that despite the disciples abandoning him and Peter denying him, he still calls them and wants to use him. And despite all our failures, he will continue to use us. Praise God. Praise God he uses broken people like us. And how do the women respond? They flee from the tomb. The, the verse says, trembling and astonishment had gripped them. They are consumed by fear. The verse 38, verse 8, sorry, ends with, the women said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. So Mark's original gospel ends with the word afraid. Now you'll notice here, verses 9 through 20 are in brackets. Not part of the original manuscript. They are added much later. Now there's a lot to that, so what I'll tell you is there is a man named Dalton here. So you might want to talk to Dalton after this. And Dalton will lead you to Brett, and Brett will be conveniently on vacation and talk about it. <laughs> but seriously, I'm sure they'll answer your question. There's a lot of depth there. Um, and we notice that the women eventually do tell the disciples. Matthew, Luke, and John's gospel all indicate that they do. And then how else would a, Matthew, how else would a Mark have gotten this information if, if, if he didn't get it from the women? So why in the gospel here, the original manuscript of Mark, so abruptly with the word afraid? Now I believe Mark is calling the readers, the hearers, that in light of the res resurrection, and he's prompting them to, to respond in four ways. First of all, in light of the resurrection, knowledge of the empty tomb, reread the gospel of Mark. Now, where did I get that? Verse 7, the angel says, Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee just as he told you. So let's go back to Mark 14, 27 through 28. So that's Mark 14, 27 through 28. And it says, and Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because it's written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. To Galilee. And then go to Mark 9, 31. So it says, For he was teaching his disciples, telling them, The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. So he said this. He said it. It's fulfilled. So if it's fulfilled, then you go back and read the entire thing. You ponder deeply on every single word of the Gospel of Mark. In light of the resurrection, look at it. Dwell deeply on it. Allow the Holy Spirit to enlighten and sanctify your heart with the Gospel of Mark and all the Gospels, knowing what occurred. Second, in light of the resurrection, what are the apostles teaching? 
Where did I get this? Look again at verse 7. Go tell his disciples and Peter. So why mention Peter specifically? It's likely because the audience knew exactly who Peter was. So what does Peter teach here? Okay, turn with me to Acts 2, chapter 2, verses 22 through 24. So that's Acts 2, verses 22 through 24. What does, what does Peter say? So Peter says here, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just, <clears throat> just as you were yourself know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of a godless man and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held by its power. How about go to Acts 3, verses 13 through 15. So Acts 3, verses 13 through 15. It says, The God of Abraham... Isaac, Jacob, the God of the fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murder to be granted to you and put to death the prince of life, the one who God raised from the dead, a fact which we are a witness. And then jump to 18. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of the prophets that his Christ would suffer and that which was fulfilled. And then how are we supposed to respond? Verse 19, therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that the times of refreshing may come in the presence of the Lord. So what is he saying here? He's saying, you did this, humans. In your sinfulness, you did it. But God did it. So wait a second, how is that possible? How is it that they chose to do it, but God did it? Because God could do everything. God ordained everything. Do you think it's a coincidence that Barabbas was there at this time, Pilate was in power at this time, that the chief priests, the elders, and council were all there together at this time, that the crowd came up at this point in time? Actually, take it a step further. Jesus planned every single moment of this. Jesus even knew the person that would get his garments. He did it. He planned it. He planned it for who? His church. Those who he would have mercy on. Those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life for the foundation of the world. That's who he did it for. Jesus did this willingly, knowingly, planned it, and he did it for us, the church. The third one, in light of the resurrection, learn the Old Testament. So where, where do I get this one? Look at 15 verse 38. The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This is rich in theological symbolism. Not something that Mark would easily gloss over unless there is expectation that the apostle or the disciple of the apostle will teach them the deeper meanings of the Old Testament. To teach them about the Torah, the tabernacle, animal sacrifices, the ark, and especially the prophecies of Jesus Christ. Listen, I was looking at a chart the other day and there's more than 120 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. It's simply amazing. And then in chapter 15 and 16 alone, he, he 
fulfills many of them. And just quickly to note them, Psalms 22 contains that he was mocked and insulted. Hands and feet were pierced. Soldiers cast lots for his clothes. Psalms 27 and 35, accused by false witnesses. Isaiah 40, shepherd dies for his sheep. Amos, Amos 8, the sun was darkened. Isaiah 50, scourged and spat on. Isaiah 52 through 53, rejected by his people. His word was not believed. Suffered, silent when accused. Crucified with his transgressors. Buried with the rich. Isaiah 55, calling on those who are not Israel. And then finally, in light of the resurrection, work for the unity and the purity of the church. Now, where do, what verse could I point to, to that? Not one verse, the entire book of Mark. Who do you think that was written for? It was written for the church. The gospel of Jesus Christ was for the church. Now, he's calling the body to be unified together in one. And we are called to be holy, to be set apart. Now, I do want to close quickly here, and I know I've gone way over my time, but I, uh, I was reading this story one time in one of John Piper's books, and it really struck me to the core. Uh, John Piper used to go with his father, who was a traveling uh, evangelist, and he, t- he said he remembered this one moment when he went uh, to one of his father's uh, evangelists. Uh, events. And he said at this, this event, there was an old man there who was very hostile to the gospel, very hard-hearted, that his family and his friends had been praying for him for years. After John Piper's father presented the gospel in a clear and articulate way, to the astonishment of the family and friends, this man gave his life over to Christ. And there was crying and tears of joy that this man gave his life over to Christ. But those tears slowly turned to wails of sobbing and crying and anger, not from his family, not from his friends, but from the man. Because it hit him, truth hit him, that he had wasted, wasted all these years going after things that didn't mean, nothing that was eternal. Now I close with that, and you may think, how does that apply to us as believers? Now it does apply to us, because we waste a significant amount of time thinking about things, doing things that have no eternal consequence. Now I believe that when we are in in heaven, we're going to look back and we're going to see all the time that we wasted. But we're also going to see all the time that that we focused on God. And that's going to be like threads of gold that God's going to weave for us to show us what he was doing in our life. So redeem the time that you have. Redeem it by looking at scripture, pondering upon it, dwelling upon it. Do it by fellowshipping with one another, loving one another. Do it by loving the church for the unity of the church, the purity of the church. Do it for that. And I'm telling you, you're never going to regret it. You're never going to regret the fact that you may have missed the Chiefs game in order to go to church. You're you're never going to forget the times that you spent praying with someone instead of at home because you were tired. Redeem the times. Okay, pray with me.